You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Women have stupid dreams. We laud each other only to tear each other down. We are not like men. Men shake hands with hate between them all the time and have public arguments that are an obvious jostling for power and position. They compete for dominance, if not over money, then over mating. They know this, each and every one. But women are civilized animals. We have something to prove, too, but we'll swirl our anger with straws in the bottom of our drinks and suck it up, leaving behind a lipstick stain. We'll comment on your hair or your dress only to land a backhanded compliment, make you feel pathetic and poor, too fat or too thin, too young or too old, unsophisticated, unqualified, unwanted. For women, power comes by subtle degrees. I could write a thesis on such women, and I nearly did. Don't get me wrong, I am one of them, too. I've had stupid dreams, and you, yourself, are the result. You, strange seven pounds of other. Here you are, under my hands, swimming in blood, about the size of a turtle. I know my voice must sound far away, muted, like someone talking underwater. Maybe it's crazy that I'm nattering on, having a conversation with you when you aren't even born yet, just tumbling, turning, in the big cloud of my abdomen. You can't possibly understand. Still, this is where I've got to. I'm here in this cottage in the woods and the snow, Stuck here, really, because Grace has taken the car with gas and left me with the one on empty. And how far can I walk in this state? To be honest, I don't know what else to do. So I talk. Let me tell you where we've been over the past few months, baby. You'll never understand, but let me tell you. Right now I can see our neighbors outside the window and through the trees. They're the only people other than Grace who I've seen in nearly three months, always from a distance and only sporadically. Perhaps they aren't home all the time or don't go outside any more than I do. There are just the two of them. I can see the red of her coat and the blue of his. I only know who is who by their heights. I can smell the smoke that's rising up, the stench of something singed. Even through the closed door and the window glass, I can smell it, like sulfur. I smelled it the first day I came here, but there was too much happening then for me to think to ask what it was. And Grace probably wouldn't have told me anyway. She had her own troubles, and I, I was just looking for Carl. Emily Schultz is the author of Heaven is Small, Songs for the Dancing Chicken, and Joyland. Her new novel is The Blondes. Thank you for joining me, Emily. Thanks, Rick. This is a very interesting way to dissect the war between the sexes, the difference between the sexes, sex itself, and the way men perceive women, the way we all perceive ourselves, to do so in a disease-plague novel uh, in that kind of genre, that's an interesting choice. What drew you to that genre, the disease novel? Well, you know, I think the genre just came about um, naturally, almost. Um, What happened with this book is... I was on a plane and I was reading Vanity Fair, or there was a Vanity Fair there and I was flipping through it. And there was this Gucci ad with these murderous looking blonde women. I know they were supposed to be beautiful, but they just looked scary to me. 
And they were wearing safari wear and they had a lot of eyeliner making them look kind of, you know, vamp vampiric. And I just thought the blondes and I had this idea for a gang of blonde women who murder. And it kind of grew from there. So that, you know, I came up with the idea of a disease that only affects blonde haired women, whether it's natural or bleached. And thought that it might be a fun way to look at some of the power imbalances in our culture and also just, you know, to, to have fun with it. I mean, what would happen if women were suddenly the aggressors? You know, it, it's so interesting that an, an image that is almost an iconic uh, version of this kind of exp- iconic expression of the power imbalance in the way men perceive women and objectify women is the one that launched this <laughs> book. It's, yeah. it's a very that's that's a, a great irony in and of itself. It is kind of. I mean, I did I did look. At, I watched a lot of plague movies while I was writing it, and I watched some horror movies, and I so I was thinking about that, and I was also thinking about comedy because I wanted it to be you know I wanted it to have some some real touches of humor too, and you know, just kind of just trying to find that dance between something that was a serious social commentary, but that you could also just have fun with. Because anytime I tell people what the plot of the book is, they laugh. That's the first reaction is they laugh. (laughs) Well, I I did too. And and early and often through the book. uh, But one of the things I think that makes this book so compelling is any kind of book that works in humor really has to have a voice that takes itself seriously and takes the situation very seriously. And I think you've come up with this great voice of Hazel Hayes. So talk about discovering that character and also discovering how you were going to tell the story and who it was going to be told to. Okay, sure, yeah. Um, Hazel Hayes is a grad student, and she's working on her thesis. Um, She studies something called esthetology, which, of, of course, is not a real subject matter. It was. Um, it should be. <laughs> she describes it as, um, you know, it's it's ways of looking, and she describes it as how women, you know, see themselves and how we see each other. Um, but it's it's a made up subject, and she's supposed to be basically a cultural and communication studies major, and she is in New York to do research um, when she realizes she's pregnant, and she's pregnant with her married thesis advisor's child. So it's an affair that she's, you know, not real proud of. And I decided to have her narrate the story to the unborn child, who she's not, you know, she's not 100% sure she wants to even be pregnant. Um, And the reason I wanted to do that was so that Hazel, because she's alone for a lot of the novel and trying to make her way out of these situations where there are blonde attacks and where the city is being shut down, um, I needed to have her talk to somebody. So I, because otherwise you just have a character alone. And so I thought if she guides us by talking to the child, it's almost like she's talking to us and telling us a very intimate story. And she's narrating everything that has happened to her over, you know, an eight, eight or nine month period as the disease has swelled. And I, I just thought that would be a way to kind of ground a story that could otherwise become too action-based to kind of give it a more of an intimacy. It grounds it in a couple of ways. Both it gives this a straight narrative through line, but it also provides, I think, an emotional grounding 
uh, both in terms of her relationship with her baby and to be and her relationship with herself. I think it's a really effective and and fun device. Well, thank you. You know, when you said the blonde attacks, <laughs> I just had to smile because that is such a that's such a funny idea. And again, with any kind of funny idea, you have to really ground it in kind of reality. That's to to get the humor to work. You, yeah, you really do. And I wanted to make sure that the disease, even though, you know, we don't find out exactly how this blonde disease works, that everything seems very realistic. So, for instance, things like, you know, as they discover the disease and where the outbreaks are, there's, you know, a National Geographic type map where they've made like red and orange zones, places where there have been outbreaks, places that seem safe. And, you know, how diseases get named. So it starts out, they have nicknames for it, and they call it the Blonde Fury, and they call it Gold Fever, and they call it Blonde Rabies. And then eventually they come up with a more scientific name, and they call it SHV, uh, Siphonaptera Human Virus, because they think it comes from fleas. And, of course, then there are people that don't think it comes from fleas, and you have scientists, you know, with other theories. I, I think um, that in terms of crafting the disease, how much did you do before you started writing the book on, or and once you came up with the idea and how much of it did you just kind of invent as you go? I really honestly, I invented most of it as I went. I read, um, I read a book called Bring Out the Dead um, and that was about, um, that was about, oh no. <laughs> was, was it, um, was it Gold Fever or Spanish Flu? Gold Fever's mine. Um, Spanish Flu sounds about right. yeah. And But, I mean, that was really interesting because, you know, it was about how disease travels. Mm-hmm. And also The Hot Zone, obviously, is a really good book about how disease travels. Um, but that one also had a lot of really interesting things like, um, you know, how these products will crop up, you know, that are um, repellents. <laughs> and so that made it into the book is, you know, even, you know, going back in, in history that you had these sort of, I don't know, these sort of um, remedies, like almost like home remedies that people are trying to sell you. And so that made it into the book. I had things like Blonde Away and Blonde Off and these products that crop up. But basically, I had done some of that reading, but really, I just kind of wrote the thing straight through Mm -hmm. as it came to me. And then once I had the whole book, I went back and I added more details and more layers. So it it was kind of invented on the spot. You know, one of the things I think that I found really interesting for me as a reading experience is reading the perspective of Hazel. She's the other woman, the other woman in an extramarital affair with uh, this man, Carl. Mm -hmm. And I think that as a man reading that, you just feel it's a really interesting uh, kind of set of feelings because you feel like, God, this guy is such a a scumbag. (laughs) I'm glad you thought that. So the only... You know, the, the main guy in the book is, is like, vile. <laughs> and this is an interest. Did you yeah, how think did, about that uh, reading experience? As I mean, because Did it upset a, you? Because he is, he is really the main male character. Yeah, yeah. No, it, it was upsetting. It was uh, distressing. I, I, I would call it, um, it was disturbing to read that, to, to think that here's, okay, this is men. We are Ugh. the scum of the earth. Oh, I didn't want him to stand in for all men. There are some men in the book that try to help Hazel mm-hmm. along the way. Well, that's true. But I, I'm just curious, as a writer, when you were crafting this, did you think about, um, because I think men and women are going to have a kind of a different read on this book. 
Well, maybe. I mean, it's interesting that you bring that up um, because it is largely a female cast. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's Hazel and there are these women that she goes to along the way. She goes to another thesis advisor, another academic who she wants to help her. And she winds up actually phoning this woman to take her to an abortion clinic, which doesn't work out. Um, she's foiled by the disease itself, um, which starts shutting down women's health services and whatnot. Um, and then she has friends along the way that try mm-hmm. to help her, too. So there are a lot of women in the book. And there's Grace, Carl's wife. Right. And uh, she we'll winds up. Grace. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> she winds up trapped with Grace at one point with the wife of the man that she's been sleeping with. Um, but with Carl, I just, you know, I, I thought he's her professor and I wanted it to be a mutual uh, relationship. And, you know, there's certainly consent, but there's also that abuse of power. And mm-hmm. she's a young woman and maybe doesn't see the abuse of power as much as we do mm-hmm. as readers. And so that was kind of how Carl came into being, is I wanted him to kind of be the, the stereotypical professor who has been sleeping with maybe many students over a period of years. And she just happens to be the student of the moment. And after a while, she starts to realize that. But at the same time, you know... She has some affection for him, but mm-hmm. we don't. <laughs> <laughs> Not at all. And I think that that kind of uh, dichotomy of uh, perception, how we feel about the characters, that really informs this book, I think, all the way through in terms of uh, using the disease to change the way society perceives women, the way uh, society perceives itself, the way men perceive women. I think this is uh, this book uses that kind of uh, genre trope, a very simple genre trope, to perform all sorts of interesting, twisty uh, perspective change shifts on the reader. And uh, for readers, that's a lot of fun. When you were crafting this, did you um, engage, did you think, oh, this is something, this is a, 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 a an inversion I've got to pursue? You know, I don't know if I did or if I just followed the story. <laughs> You know, as I say, I wrote it really fast, and then I had to rewrite it. Mm-hmm. I was, um, well, we're in California, so I can say we, I was, um, I rented a a cabin out in 29 Palms, California, near uh, Joshua Tree National Park, and wrote really the bulk of the book in about two weeks. Mm. So it was one of those books that just felt like it it arrived in, boom, and it was down on the paper. Where, I mean, a lot of times that's not the case. Sometimes you struggle with a book you know, for years and years and years. But this, I had the first draft really quickly, and then I had to kind of deepen it and put those levels in there and try to make, you know, the genre play off of each other. Because as you say, it is is a little bit horror, a little bit comedy, you know, a little bit speculative. Tell us about creating Carl. He's a lot of fun in this book because he is, he's such a slime <laughs> and And, you know, it's interesting, too, when you say this, because we as readers immediately, I think, twig to that Hazel is, you know, X and N in a series. Um, she's not, she does, is not so soon to twig to that. Um, and I think that that uh, gives us a slightly different perception, but we're embedded in her perception. And that's kind of a fun, that creates a reading tension for us. Yeah, it does. And I mean, writing Hazel for me was a little bit difficult because I'm probably closer to Carl's age now Mm -hmm. than Hazel's age. And I had to try to make her naive without making her seem stupid, you know, because I want her to become our hero as the book goes on. 
Um, but the way she sees Carl is, you know, she sees him naively. She gets involved with him. She's, you know, she's excited by his attention and she's kind of titillated and she also hates herself for liking him. Um, Carl, you know, he's supposed to be about 46 and he's married and, you know, he is obviously someone who was a very popular academic at one time and maybe he's now, you know, not publishing as much and he's not as, as high up in academia as he would like to be. Um, she calls him stalled out, I think, at one time. Um, they have this affair where he takes her to his cottage. And then they have this, you know, they have a lot of conversations about film in the book because she's a, a cultural communication studies major. And, um, you know, he's he's basically, he says, you know, I saw, when I discovered Woody Allen, I discovered him in the theater. And when you discovered him, you discovered him you know, on DVD or online, but it's the same experience, you know, first discovering, you know, an artist. And um, I just wanted to have him be one of those people who he's telling her about the way that he's experienced the world and telling her how she should experience it. You know, that sort of teacherly voice that comes in, even when they're in the bedroom and there's a lovemaking scene, you know, he's still trying to teach (laughs) in the middle of all of that. Well, I love that you say at one point he's hoping to rescue himself or hoping she'll rescue him from middle age and mediocrity, which I think is <laughs> admirable, something admirable to be rescued from. Yeah, I don't know that she does rescue him. In fact, I'm not No, sure. she doesn't. No. <laughs> not even for a moment, really. No, no. That's I, I alas, there is no rescue from those perils. Once yeah. they have ensnared you, you're you're done. <laughs> now, <clears throat> I think uh, the perception of women in this book is really, really interesting. And really, uh, I think uh, it's fun to, to pick it apart because there's so many different versions of women and different visions of women. There are, you know, the ones we bring with us and the ones that the book starts with and the ones she starts with of herself as, you know, she's not happy with herself. And then this transformation happens. And I'd like you to talk about uh, crafting that transformation um, on a society that happens from her on an individual level. But she's seeing something that's happening across society. Right. Yeah. And this is why I thought it was important for Hazel to be, you know, she has this kind of background in picking apart media and so that she can actually watch the the whole disease and how it plays up in the media and how it's affecting people and she's our observer of the of the blonde virus as it spreads um but i wanted her to be i mean partly because she's young i wanted her to be um not very self-confident fairly self-critical you know she kind of describes herself as plain and dumpy she's not the typical other woman she's not the young hot thing that he started sleeping with um or at least she doesn't see herself that way um, so that she can, in some ways, you know, but she is, she does have um, a certain amount of self-confidence in that she's very acidic and she has this sense of humor and, um, you know, she has a lot to say about what she sees happening around her. But I wanted to do that because I think that when you have a novel and you have, you know, kind of a very heroic uh, narrator taking you through it, it's less believable because all people are, are deeply flawed and full of contradictions. And, you know, I wanted to reveal that as we go. She's full of contradictions. He's full of contradictions. Everyone that she meets is, you know, imperfect in some way. 
But at the same time, we're all, I think, really capable of great feats, you know. And so we watch Hazel as the as the novel goes on. She escapes from many very dangerous situations, and I don't want to make any spoilers. Um, but she also just comes into herself. She becomes uh, much more self-directed. And I think that this happens, you know, for everybody in times of crisis is you focus on what's really important. And that's what I wanted to have in the book, so that she's not a hero, but we begin to see her as heroic because of the situations that she navigates through and how she navigates them. You talked about the, the situations, and I will say you have a, a great sense of scene and setting these scenes of action and, you know, these kind of set pieces that you have throughout the novel. And I think they're really, they're very intense. And I'm, Did you visit these places? Oh, yeah. I mean, when I wrote the book, I was doing a lot of traveling. Mm -hmm. um, we were talking before this interview, and I have a son now, so I don't travel as much because he's three. So he's not at that age where I can take him. But um, I was doing a lot of traveling when I wrote this book, which is why there are also a lot of airport scenes. Is <laughs> It just felt like a natural environment. And especially because diseases often do, you know. Sure, that's we watch. Yeah, exactly. We watch that with SARS. We watch that with Ebola. And, you know, they do often spread by flight. And uh, so I, I did go to Washington Square Park. There's a scene in Washington Square Park um, <laughs> near the fountain. And... Um, as uh, part of the novel is set in Canada, and I, I grew up in Canada, so I'm very familiar with Toronto. And uh, when she winds up in the cabin, she's, and I'm not giving anything away here because you know fairly early on that she winds up in the cabin with Carl's wife, Grace. Um, you know, it's set in the Canadian North, but I because I wrote the book in a cabin out in Joshua Tree, that cabin really did look like the one that I was in in, in Joshua Tree. Like, it was a Western-themed cowboy-themed cabin. And I have Carl is, you know, the way to make Hazel and Carl meet on some level is that his thesis was in a study of masculinity and, you know, the whole cow the whole idea of cowboy culture. And since she's so interested in, in women and, you know, how we're represented, um, that's kind of what I thought the meeting place for them would be, is the fact that he's interested in masculinity and cowboy culture, and she's interested in the opposite. I, I'm Love the kind of the the sense of humor in this book. It's very playful and very dark, and I think what's the best about it is is that I, as I read this and I was laughing at these some of these just great scenes. I think that your most effective technique is that you never actually, in a sense, tell us you're telling a joke. I mean, there's no jokes in here. There's just scenes that are absurd beyond. <laughs> Redemption. <laughs> yeah, there are. I mean, there are some funny little lines, and when mm -hmm. I when I perform from it, when I read it in public, I never know if I should smile a little bit to give the audience a cue that it's okay to laugh, or if I should read it completely deadpan and straight and have them take it like as seriously as Hazel would. Because when you read a, a first person narrative aloud, you're essentially reading the character. You're reading in their voice. So, I still have to figure that out. <laughs> but you're welcome to laugh at the book. Well, I think, too, um, when you're writing a book like this, it's kind of uh, method acting, as it were. It is a little bit. To, to create Hazel's perspective. So when you were writing this book, were you laughing at the, at the funny parts? I, I, yes, I was laughing at the funny parts. But then I was also having to take it seriously and, you know, go back in and try to put in those real details. And sometimes emotional, you know, the um, trying to find the emotional resonance 
um, that's needed at that point in the story. And for some of those, you do have to kind of draw on your own experiences. Like there are some deaths in this book. I won't say who and I won't say where. But I had to, my editor, when I went, when I had finished, said she knew that someone very close to me had died. And she said, would you like to go back in and just put a little more? And so I did, based on those feelings of how you feel when you lose somebody. Mm -hmm. So those kinds of things. So it was, you know, it's funny because you have when you're first writing something, that first flush of, you know, excitement that you're, you're getting it down on paper. And then you have when you're doing the second draft or the third or fourth or fifth draft and, you know, trying to hit all the right notes. Fine tune. Yeah. Take away, take away the parses, pieces of the marble that don't belong in the sculpture as far. Yes. Now, uh, one of the things I think that's, uh, I think this book is really craftily conceived and, and executed. I mean, it reads very smoothly and quickly. It's, I, it's, it's a disease thriller. I mean, in a sense, there's no rocket science. But when I was looking back at it, I thought, boy, she does a lot of really interesting stuff in terms of chronology, in terms of characterization. And did that just flow off the tip of your pen? Or did was there some, like, back uh, database you were pulling from? Um, no, I think I just, um, with going back into Hazel's history and Carl's history and, you know, all of the characters having backstories, um, those just kind of came. It was like, who is this person? And then you explore it and you give them a scene. And maybe later I had to move that scene around to find the place where it fit. But, you know, when you start a novel, you don't know who anyone is just as the reader doesn't. And you have to find you have to find them because they have to become real, real people. So you didn't know any of the characters before you started this? I really didn't. I had I had a good sense, I think, of who Hazel was going to be. Mm -hmm. um, and the others I didn't know. I, I mean, I did know. I did know that I wanted to put some smart blondes in. Mm -hmm. I thought that was very important. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk about your your smart blonde, uh, Professor Kovacs. Yes, I, I love her. I think she's so great. So when you, I love Professor Kovacs too. I have to admit it. Yeah. So uh, tell us about uh, creating that character and bringing her into the narrative, and, and you know, writing a smart blonde was that. I will say to, since we're on radio here, I will say to our readers, you are not blonde. No. And did you... I be, have been blonde. You have? Okay. Briefly. Uh, I did about I did about four or five months as a blonde. Uh, when uh, writing the book? No, it was before writing the book. But mm -hmm. I mean, it was, in some ways, I think it fed into the book because it's really? almost... I'm so dark haired. Mm -hmm. I, well, actually, I'm, I'm a little gray now and there's more gray than you can see today because I've been going to the salon. Um, but... Uh, I, I so when I did blonde, it was it was really a big change, and people treated me very differently. And so that, in some ways, did play into the book and the whole idea of hair and and how we judge people, um, how we judge people, and what we think a blonde is or a brunette is, or um, you know. And I like to say I, I think it's not just about the color in the book, but it's also about hair identity. Mm -hmm. You know, because I think women especially. Um, sexuality is linked to hair, you know, in all of our advertising, but also in our literature. And whether you keep your hair long, whether you keep your hair short, whether it's, you know, curly, whether it's straight, like we just have a lot of identity attached to our hair. Um, but when I was blonde, it was very different. And, you know, it turned heads. And I don't normally turn heads. 
not as a brunette. Um, I got a lot of unwanted attention and I was surprised and I wondered if all my blonde friends had dealt with this for years and how they dealt with it. <laughs> they never told me if, you know, if they had learned to deflect male attention just because they were blonde or maybe they didn't know that it was because they were blonde. Boy, that's really interesting. I, I know mean, that I, wasn't your question. Really. No, no, but that no, that was my that's that's perfect. I mean, so you when you were blonde, you 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 felt you were treated really differently. Did you feel differently? Did you think you were acting differently by virtue of being a blonde? Being blonde a little bit, but I mean, there are stereotypes about blondes that they're more vivacious and more accommodating, that they're more of a hostess type, mm-hmm. you know, life of the party. Blondes have more fun. Um, but is it true? <laughs> no, I don't think it's true. I actually felt, in some ways, I felt more anonymous as a blonde mm. because it was so different from who I am mm-hmm. that it was like I was playing a role and a lot of people didn't recognize me. People who'd known me for a long time would see me on the street and pass right by me without seeing me. Really? Yeah. So I turned heads from strangers, but people I knew didn't see me because my hair was so different. They just didn't recognize me. Boy, that's a, that is an interesting inversion. Well, no, man, yeah. no wonder you wrote this book. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Hazel is also not a blonde. No, Hazel's a redhead. And I and I think you do a lot of interesting stuff. You were talking about hair identity. That's such an interesting concept, and the idea that we and it makes sense when you uh, say it in the novel that we identify people more by their hair than by their face. Right. You know, everyone's picked up on that line, and it's really interesting. That line was something that. Um, a guy friend in college said to me, mm-hmm. I don't know where he read it, but um, it may be true. And I, I don't know if that was scientific or if it was just something that he had observed. When you're um, you writing a book like this, you have to get to use a lot of scientific uh, data, kind of salt it lightly through the narrative, through, the, through our experience of science. And I think what's interesting here is the public experience of science, because on one hand, you could write a science fiction novel like, uh, I'm thinking, um, The Andromeda Strain, where it's all set in the facility and it's a race against time, and all, they're all scientists looking at all the science. Here, the science is kind of, there's like, uh, you know, three layers of undergarments between us and, and, the, and the science. <laughs> but I think it, you do a good job at presenting how the public consumes science. Yeah, well, here's the thing about the science in the book. Well, a couple of things. One is that some of the studies I cite are real studies, mm-hmm. and some of them are just absolutely fictional. I couldn't tell the difference. <laughs> and I, that's what I wanted. I, yeah, I, I, I have to say, when you said aesthetology was something you made up, I was I was deeply saddened. <laughs> um, yeah. Aesthetology, I think how that came about was um, Harvard decided it needed more female enrollment, so they partnered with Empire Beauty Schools right. to make this program yeah. of study. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I thought that just, I thought, wow. That sounds like a good idea. Maybe I'm surprised they did that. But, yeah, yeah. I mean, make some more money there. But the, the other thing about science in the book is that because Hazel's telling us the story, we only know what Hazel knows. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking if someone asked me about a disease and I had to describe how it worked to them, I would not do a very good job. Mm. You know, science was not my strong subject mm-hmm. in school. I took, like, bonehead biology and that was it. And then I got out, um, you know, just that first year college course that you're required to take and so I thought 
basically we're going to learn about this disease through someone who's not good at explaining it. So we have the news reports, but it's also in her voice. So we have what she remembers. And at one point I have Hazel in a doctor's office and they're testing them. And she's like, you can tell already, you know, and she's trying to explain to us how the doctor explains it to her. But instead, she gets stuck on, you know, a physical gesture that the doctor makes about whether or not proteins are binding or, you know, and she's making a gesture with her fingers, you know, as if there's something between them, like a little rubber band or something. And because I was just thinking, you know, how would I explain if I went to a doctor's office and they were testing me for something? I wouldn't be able to remember all of the scientific jargon they used if I were telling a friend. And that gets us, too, to one of the interesting aspects of this, which is the tension, uh, the way you use suspense in terms of uh, revealing to us what uh, Hazel knows and when she, as she knows it and when she's kind of telling it. Because <clears throat> this is a, a, a novel in the sense of the apocalypse and the blonde apocalypse, <laughs> which is just... <laughs> It's such a silly idea. I know it is. Uh, but, but just go with it. <laughs> I think um, what's interesting is that uh, the apocalypse isn't like this flash. Ten minutes later, it's the end of the world and we're all wearing Mad Max clothes and driving around. I mean, it happens and everybody just goes about their business. Yeah. I mean, it goes through cycles. Um, we see we see the disease at the beginning where there are all these attacks, and then they seem to contain it somewhat through things like quarantines, um, you know, women being hospitalized if they're acting erratically. Um, and then a couple months... How do you tell? <laughs> and that's I'm a, sorry, I'm sorry. <laughs> that's a question that people ask. There's a, a girl in the... In the book, they're watching a closed captioning monitor, uh-huh. and it says, like, beware of women with downturned expressions. And the girl who's watching with Hazel, watching this public television, uh, you know, a set that's just in a window, says, well, what if, we, what if we're in a bad mood or we have PMS? Right. <laughs> uh, but I also really love this idea of the apocalypse that, that has happened, only we've not really realized it yet, because I think that that's more likely the way it's going to occur will it's only after things have gotten really terrible i mean it's only was long after in fact the great depression it didn't get its name wasn't named the great depression during the great depression it was only afterwards right so how do you know when the end has come until well this is just it's it you way have, too late you have policymakers and they're making policies and people are adapting to you know this change and after a while people are um, less concerned about it. It's just there, and they take it for granted, and they stop dyeing their hair because one of the ways that you avoid it is to dye your hair dark or to shave off your hair, um, avoid contracting the disease. And after a while, people are being risky, and they're just, oh, I don't even care if I get it. You know, uh, I don't even care if I get the disease. I, I love the artist. There's there's an artist who... who uh, Gives all for her art, and, and I think the res, the response to that is so funny. I mean, there's so many really funny parts in this book, uh, and that kind of uh, perception too. And also, I, you mentioned this earlier. There's the 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 flea vector um, is originally posed, and immediately there's the anti flea vector. Uh, the, the flea vector denialists. <laughs> flea vector denialists. <laughs> and so, have you? Did you? Were 
spending some time with the uh, global warming denialists and the antivirus faction. That's I think. A, that's exactly what I was thinking, mm. really, is that you always have, and especially because, you know, um, TV shows, talk shows, you know, they need people on opposite sides. You've always got a commenter and then the commenter on the other side of that glowing desk who's saying the opposite thing and they're arguing back and forth. And I just thought, you know, this would be no different. Yeah, I'm I'm always uh, worried that uh, in my interviews I'm going to have to give the counter opposing point that this interview is takes place on you know on is could be taking place on a flat Earth or on an Earth that's orbiting <laughs> that the sun orbits around or something. You know, there's always some there's always some level of denial out there that you can achieve to achieve news uh, information parity. That's right. What the uh, one of the things that's interesting to me was that when this first happens, when we first see these first outbreaks, you know, you're just thinking, well, this isn't that big a deal. I mean, it's just just a, just a few blondes just raging a few out. Blondes, yeah, there's just a few blondes acting out. So I'm wondering when you were writing this. Um, how far did you did you know how you were going to take it to that ultimate point, or did you know how far you were going to take it? I knew always that Hazel would wind up trapped in the cabin mm-hmm. at the end, and I think because you have so many narratives, so many plague narratives, so many horror stories where someone winds up in a cabin in the woods, spam in a cabin. Yeah, but the other reason I wanted to do that was because um, the uh, you have this idea in stories where people are fleeing danger that it's going to be better somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And it never really is. They just continue to encounter danger. So that was one of the few things that I knew from the the outset. In terms of what the progression of, you know, the disease was going to be and how society reacted to it, it really, it came in, it did come in through, like, just as I was writing. I wasn't sure how heightened it would get. I really like uh, Grace. She's a really interesting character in this book. Uh, she's the uh, Carl's wife, and yet, on, alas, she and Hazel end up in this cabin together. <laughs> it's it's so uh, it, it's actually I think one of the more frightening aspects of the book. And that's what I wanted. I wanted it to narrow down to two women, and for that to somehow be more frightening than all the rest of it. <laughs> Well, too, I think what what's frightening is that the level of uh, interpersonal discomfort that it's one thing to be threatened by the plague and by the end of the world and ravaging zombie blondes. It's another to be stuck in a really small pace mm-hmm. with the person who should hate you, you most. who should hate you most and whom you should probably hate most. That is a really hellish or be uh, fearful of at least. Yes, <laughs> that is a really hellish. Uh, that's Sartre's hell, I guess. And that's what you were going for. A little. And I felt like I had to punish Hazel for having slept with a married man. So she has to be punished a little bit. You know, <laughs> so there's, there's there has to be some like you know some morality here. The divine hand of the writer uh, imposing morality upon her character. <laughs> I hope there's no writers in my life. Yeah, well, sometimes I think someone's writing my story, my story. I feel the uh, the morality creeping in. Um, but yeah, I really Grace and and uh, we were talking about Dr. Kovacs before, mm-hmm. and they're both. Um, 
you know, close associate. I mean, obviously, Co- Dr. Kovacs is a close associate of Carl's. Um, and Grace, too, has insight into Carl. And we were talking about how I built Carl earlier. And really, how he's built up is just through these women's stories of him. Okay, right. You know, if you think about it, we don't really meet Carl. We only meet Carl through the women. Mm-hmm. And um, so Grace reveals certain things to Hazel about Carl, her husband, and their Carl, her husband, which is a different Carl than, than Hazel knows because well, sure. she knows Carl, her professor. Right. And Dr. Kovacs, as an academic, sees him differently, too. You know, she has a she, – she treats him with a sense of humor, you know, and she, she has some jokes about him. <laughs> she's. A, I don't think I can say them on air. But. No, but she has. A, she has some really funny lines in this book, and they are also so incredibly dark. <laughs> and I'm wondering when when you write a line like like that. There's a the scene after she takes her to the clinic, or be, just before she takes her to the clinic. There's a line that she. It's a throwaway line, but it's just hysterical, and that's really sticks in my mind. I won't reveal it. That said, uh, when you write a line like that. Do you feel like a little guilty? <laughs> of course you of course you feel guilty. You know. You feel a little guilty because you're abusing these people. They're not real people, but they kind of are. You're you? you're tormenting your characters. I mean, yeah. you what you do to uh Grace and uh, Hazel is I mean, it's awful. <laughs> it's awkward. It's uh-huh. awkward. I mean, I think you know what I should say for people who haven't read the book is when Hazel shows up at that cabin, she's quite pregnant, so it's quite obvious to her, the wife, mm-hmm. that it wasn't just an affair. But now there's a baby in the picture, a possible baby in the picture, and you put a very you know large pregnant woman into a small space with the wife, and they also have the pregnancy to deal with. And how are they going to deal with the pregnancy? She doesn't, because of the virus, she has nothing. You know, she doesn't have maternity clothes. She doesn't have any clothes for this baby that's going to come soon. And she doesn't have access to medical care. Now, uh, that's another aspect of this book. I, you know, the way that the the medical establishment uh, ends up dealing with this. And again, <laughs> you have a lot of fun. Uh, not a big fan of hospitals and waiting rooms I take it <laughs> no is anyone a fan of hospitals and waiting rooms I, I well I that's a good point but that said I mean I presumably the people who work there have some pride in trying I, to I get suppose, yes. them and some people have had their lives saved in hospitals yeah I you know I had a hospital birth with my son and you know they handled it great I had to have a c-section they took care of me so I guess you know I shouldn't be so anti-medical establishment <laughs> <laughs> But did you, when you were writing it, were you aware of your own bias and just kind of playing to it, or were you just trying to work your way through through scenes in a way that felt realistic to you? I just thought in a virus situation, a hospital could be a scary place. Um, you know, I was living in Toronto when SARS really struck, mm-hmm. and you know the waiting rooms were just full, just full of people. And I remember seeing, you know, people going around with paper masks on. And that sort of things. Now, this was all before the Rolling Stones came and, and played that big concert in Toronto to try to bring some money back to the city but, and raise, raise Toronto spirits in, in the middle of the SARS crisis. But. Well, as I was reading this book, too, I couldn't help but think, of course, of our recent uh, experience with Ebola. Ebola. Yeah, which is really, uh, you know, having read The Hot Zone myself, and, you know, that's a been that's something that's been on my mind for a while 
And uh, you had read The Hot Zone, too, before writing this book? Right, yes. So I, but you had presumably finished the book when, during the Ebola crisis. Or were you still? Oh, had I finished The Blondes? Yeah. Yes, I had. Uh Uh-huh. Um, but it must have made it, living through that a, a really interesting experience for it you. It did. In fact, I mean, because I'm in Brooklyn now, and there was the whole case of that doctor who went out before he was quarantined. Oh, right. You know, his path through the city was not that far from where I live or my son's daycare. And we started to get a little bit paranoid, you know. Um, there was a bowling alley that he had gone to, and it was not that far from us. And we were like, oh, maybe we should keep our son home from school. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, you know, it, it's funny because having written this book and then, you know, there's a lot in here about paranoia, uh-huh. you know, and the paranoia and the fear of disease almost being um, stronger than the disease itself. So it, it was kind of interesting to me that I had that reaction. Well, I mean, you do a good job of playing with the paranoia of disease and our fear of it because it it is actually in many ways more destructive. It, it, uh, it both enables the disease to spread. Uh, in many ways, but it also, um, you know, causes us to inflict harm on one another, unnecessary harm. And, and I think that that kind of, you do a good job of showing how our, where our self, concern for self, concern for society collide, and we find ourselves in a, in a very unpleasant um internal argument about what to do, about how to self, handle ourselves. Self-preservation. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, the book is, is a, a lot about that. Like, I think if you come to this book looking for the science of the blonde disease, you're not going to find it, but you will find the social science. Mm-hmm. And that's what I wanted to present is, is how much do we help other people when there's a crisis? And how much are we helping ourselves? And the women in this book, I mean, the first little bit, Hazel says about women she -hmm. herself says is very negative but as her journey goes on women help her out a lot along the way but only to a certain point (laughs) and that's kind of what the book is about is you know that sort of that social interaction with others well it's it's about the balance we live in when society is stable um we live in, in a society where you can kind of push those boundaries back and forth, the balance back and forth and be ruder or nicer to people. When society starts to come undone in the midst of a crisis like a disease or a war or any other kind of something that has ripples through the whole society, uh, this book shows that you know we're, we buttress up the levels of how far we're going to let things go, how far we let ourselves go. Yeah. At the same time, I think, you know, there are little heroes, at least for little moments. Mm-hmm. And and then we see them, you know, you see them in the news. There are always those people that, that rush to help. There's, yeah, I, there's, a, there's a subway attack scene here. Mm-hmm. And, you know, several of the people, including Hazel, who witness this is one of the first blonde attacks that they're aware of. And they rush to help a girl who's being attacked by a blonde. And when I wrote that scene the first time, I wrote it where people were very standoffish. Mm -hmm. And then I realized, no, you know, in a crowded subway, more people would help. So I have those people who are doing things like filming the incident on their cell phone cameras. And I think those people would be there. They are there. (laughs) And then there are those people that get down on their knees and they're reaching out their hands to try to pull someone to safety. In this book, um, 
I think there's certainly room for a sequel to this world. You've created a world now, and how well do you know the world that you've created? And do you think you'll revisit that world? And and I'd like you to just talk in terms about a uh, world building to tran you because what happens is our world is uh, is transformed not for the better by this disease. Yeah, I think world building in in a speculative novel, and I mean I'm starting to realize this is a speculative novel. It is. Yes. It, it's hard for me to define it really, um, but it, it is a speculative novel, and there is a lot of world building involved. And I think when you're world building, you do have to start to really believe in it yourself. And that's why all those little details have to be so convincing. Um, even when you're writing something that's tongue in cheek, they have to be convincing and they have to be real. And you have to feel, you know, the sweat on someone else's palm as you reach out to grab their hand. Um, but, it, you know, I th toy with the idea of writing a sequel to this. And if I were going to do that, I think I would want to change perspectives and leave Hazel behind and maybe go into the POV of a blonde. <laughs> <laughs> She'd have to have shaved her head or died, I guess, that's, eh? That's what I'm thinking. Or maybe not. But also possibly rejoin, you know, rejoin the narrative after, um, after they've developed, you know, vaccines for this. Mm -hmm. And we see how society is readjusting after the blonde after the blonde virus and how people are rebuilding. Well, I think you made an interesting uh, observation earlier, too, that as this happens, people change their behavior. They accommodate. I mean, I know now, I mean, what, 10 years ago, every grocery store did not have a wipe your hands, disease, handy wipe there. That's right. And 10 years ago, you didn't often see people walking around with surgical masks, which is both are more, much more common now than they ever we were. We do. We have hand sanitizer everywhere now. Yeah, and what it's not going to do us. It's not like going to do us a whole lot of good. No, <laughs> I, I have to tell you, I'm actually I'm not a paranoid person. I don't really I don't worry about these things that much, um, except for when there's you know a big flare up of something. But um, yeah, it is interesting how how things keep changing in this way. And I mean, this is something I wanted to get out in the book too. Is um, there's a lot about uh, policing, the policing of the violent, uh, the virus, mm -hmm. and you know how they decide that someone might be at risk, and how they start doing things like separating blondes out at airports into their own line and sort of you know profiling them. Um, because I thought that was a pretty great scene. I mean, yeah, that uh, that's going to happen. I'm just, to a degree, I'm surprised they don't do it now. <laughs> If there's a blonde virus, I think it could happen very quickly. <laughs> I've been speaking with Emily Schultz. Her new novel is The Blondes. Thank you for joining me, Emily. Oh, thank you so much, Rick. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.